Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Yasmin Castañeda, the founder and CEO of Origin Mexico. I am so excited to have you here to talk about your story, to talk about Origin Mexico. We're pretty much the same age. We're in the, we check the same box, <laughs> but our lives are very, very different, even though we grew up in very similar areas and everything. So... I can't wait to hear your story. Before we go into that, though, before we go into the yeah. chisme of your story and me yes. telling your bio and everything, we start with the wine. Yeah. So I don't know if you're partaking. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see that one. We're both half whites today. Um, what are you drinking today? So I'm drinking a Sauvignon Blanc. So my am I. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It's my go-to. I love it. And I believe my husband bought it at a Trader Joe's. They have a great wine selection there, by the way. They, yeah. Um, so this one is from New Zealand. And I love, I love Sauvignon Blancs from New Zealand specifically. Um, so, and, you know, it's so funny yeah. is I am not a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc fan. Really? Because they're too grapefruit forward for me. Oh, and I don't like grapefruit. That's why I love them. <laughs> But that's why we can't ever judge anybody's thing, right? We all have a different palate. So I love that you love them to tell people why you love them. So continue. I apologize for interrupting you. I wanted to show you. So my husband and I, we got married in Valle de Guadalupe. Nice. And 10 years ago, before it was very popular and hip. And I think like two weeks before we got married, Anthony Bourdain stayed in the Airbnb or the little bed and breakfast that we stayed at which was pretty awesome. Yeah. But um, the only glasses that survived is this one from El Cielo because we moved last year. And of course, a lot of things were damaged during the relocation. But this one survived and it's from El Cielo, which is in Valle de Guadalupe. Nice. Yeah. So tell me what you like besides the grapefruity. What do you like about the New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs? You know, every... Wine that I've had, specifically Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, I feel like it's an everyday wine <laughs> for me. I could just drink it. I don't need to necessarily pair it with anything else. It's my go-to, especially when I'm cooking or I'm just enjoying a book or I'm sitting outside. It's refreshing. It's easy on the palate. It's smooth. And I'm, I'm not a wine connoisseur by any means. I just know that I love it. I love that it's subtle. And very refreshing. That's what people want to know and need to know mm-hmm. because so many people like I'm, I still have so much to learn about wine. 
So I try and share like little things. I do like the citrusy of Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc. I do like the refreshness of it. But again, because I don't like grapefruit, mm. New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, just they don't do it for me. I had to do one for a tasting mm-hmm. and I like, and I've done a few try like let me try it let me try it and every single one i'm just like i can't do this it, and it's only because and i don't ever want to bag on another wine because mm-hmm. everybody has their own palate like i was saying but i just don't like grapefruit and that's all i can taste when i taste really? new zealand sauvignon blancs yes that is interesting now i'm pretty sure that whenever i taste a sauvignon blanc i'll think of a grapefruit now yeah. <laughs> that's all you're going to think of now <laughs> yeah. right so i'm actually having a sauvignon blanc from herencia del valle they're actually out of napa mm-hmm. and i like it because it is still very refreshing it is still very citrusy but it doesn't it's more like it has like more like apricot Ooh. as well that's totally what i'm smelling right now and lemon and Ooh. lemongrass versus Ooh, lemongrass yeah, mm-hmm. and I love lemongrass. Oh my gosh. Me too. So, well, salud. Salud. It is good. Mm. <laughs> yes. Both of us are like, ooh, I'm so glad. I we're know. <laughs> but you know what? I am actually really happy we're both having Sauvignon Blancs because we can share the differences, right? Like of, of what we like about them and everything. So it makes me happy. Makes my heart happy. (laughs) So let me share your bio really quick. And I really love it because you're you're almost telling a story in your bio instead of just being a bio. And what you say is your story is shaped by the path created through the many sacrifices of your grandparents and mother. It's through their resilience and perseverance that you've had a voice to share. And it's through gratitude that you're able to give back to the artisan communities in Mexico. You were born in L.A., Grew up in Tijuana and in San Diego, and you state that this unique experience allowed you to enjoy a bicultural upbringing, which helped shape your admiration for your culture and heritage while embracing the opportunities in America. I love that. Um, you. You also go on to say that you've had your upbringing was full of challenges that you would later learn to embrace as gifts from the universe. And I want to definitely talk about that. That all of these lessons in life taught you a lesson of hope, faith, and the power of a positive mindset. And now you have left corporate America, you've left corporate life to return to kind of that centered person that you always knew you were and you always knew you were meant to be. So now you have Orjamaico. So I love that. Tell me a little bit about truly growing up as a border kid. Because, you know, we all have different experiences. Even me and my sisters, our Latinidad is very, very different. Mm -hmm. But I want to hear your experiences growing up as a border kid. Well, I just wanted to also say thank you for having me on the podcast. It's it's an honor to be able to share my story. And listening to you read my bio, it's interesting. I've never heard anyone else say those words aside from me. So it's a great experience to be able to be the listener. So as you mentioned, I was born in Los Angeles. And when I turned four, my mom decided to relocate us to Tijuana, Mexico. And I lived there till I was about 18 years old. So life for me looked very different than anyone else living in San Diego. I would essentially wake up every morning, get ready, cross the border and go to school every day. So I would have to 
essentially assimilate this culture every day. You wake up in Mexico, you speak Spanish, you have a Mexican breakfast, everything's Mexican. Within 30 minutes, you're immersed in a different culture, different language, different ways of conducting yourself as well. And that was a very unique experience. I didn't realize how unique it was until I've actually moved to Texas. <laughs> I just thought everyone lived this way or had the same experience. As a former person who lived in Texas, I lived in Dallas for 15 mm -hmm. years. Tejanos are very, very different than totally. California Mexicans. Totally. And for me, Spanish is my first language. I learned to speak English when I turned four, pretty much when I started school. So it was a great experience, but I think that that taught me to adapt the adaptability factor of, yes, you're Mexico, you know, you're, you're Mexican, you speak Spanish, but you know what? You, within 30 minutes, you'll be in the States and you have to adapt yourself to a different culture. And I think you develop this skill set <laughs> without even realizing it. Your mannerisms change, the way that you speak change, um, everything changes about you. Then after working eight hours or going to school eight hours in San Diego, I always missed being back in Tijuana, something that was familiar, something that was where I grew up and speaking Spanish. We speak Spanish at home here. My husband and I and my girls, although they answer in English, but I speak to them in Spanish. It's just something that's so familiar to you. And I loved it. And when I tell a lot of people, especially here in Texas, as you mentioned, it's different for them because they can't understand. They're like, wait, you grew up in Tijuana, but then you studied in the States. I'm like, yep. And my husband did as well. He's from Mexicali. So oh, we both, wow. yeah. yeah. So we both shared the same upbringing. And I think that maybe that's one of the reasons why we connected so well early on in our relationship is there's a lot of similarities and we were able to connect in that way. But I loved it. I mean, I, I loved being able to have the benefits of embracing both cultures. I loved it. But it also allowed me to cherish my own heritage and my own culture and to miss it every day. And knowing, so I'll just kind of tell you really quick. I used to take, when I lived in Tijuana, for anyone that can relate to this, I lived in Otay and I used to take a taxi. And I was about a, to ask you, was it Otay yeah. or Chula Vista or San Isidro? Where did you like, okay. So Otay, okay. I would actually, I lived in Otay, but because the Otay border doesn't have, or at that point, it's not like pedestrian friendly. So you didn't have any public transportation back then. This is many, many years ago. Um, so I would actually take a taxi and a bus and another bus to get to the San Isidro border. And then I would take a trolley and then another bus. And then oh I would go God. to school. I know. It's crazy. So The things me, that we take for granted oh, here. Totally. So it was normal for me that, okay, you have to wake up two hours before school starts or three hours and just make do and adjust your schedule. And that was it. I didn't have a different point of reference. So I didn't know how difficult it was until now that I'm older. You know, you know once I bought a car, I'm like, oh, wow, I could have done this in 30 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I kind of slept in, but it was great. I loved it. And yeah, when I was 18, I, I moved to San Diego and I lived there till last year, 2020. Wow. So let me ask you, because obviously 
when you go, when you're living in Otay and then you're going to school in San Isidro, which is a border town, you're still, there's still a lot of, what did you feel like the differences of you being a child who's being, who's living in Tijuana versus another Mexican child who is growing up in San Isidro, which is literally, that is literally the border for people who do not know. <laughs> what did you feel like those differences were when you were crossing the border and, and making friends or you may have not even realized it then, or maybe you did realize it, but looking back, what are those differences that you would see you versus them? You know, there was a very different dynamic between those kids that are raised in San Isidro, live in San Isidro, go to school in San Isidro versus me. <laughs> I was born in the States. However, I'm from Tijuana. So it was very different. And I think that one of the main differences is I spoke Spanish most of the time. That was That's my go-to language. It's by my default. And I wasn't able to really spend a lot of time with the kids that lived in San Isidro because you have to go home and it's a three-hour ride home and you start all over again the next day. So I didn't benefit from a lot of the activities like that you would, like living in San Isidro or living in San Diego. So like sports, all of that was in Tijuana. All of that was shopping, you know, just hanging out at the mall. My my, my grandma (laughs) used to take us to Tijuana all the time to go shopping for school. Well, us, my sisters weren't old enough or one wasn't born and the other one wasn't old enough. But yeah, I remember she, that's where she would take me to go school shopping was in Tijuana. In Tijuana? What place? Oh my goodness. Because I was, shopping all the time. There. I don't remember <laughs> the name, but I remember it was like a it was like a mall with all of the windows cuz I was so young. My grandma died yeah. when I was like 7. So oh. it's really hard to but I do very much remember all of these like extended windows where you would see everything and I'd be like, "Yeah, I want that. Yeah, I want that." <laughs> She's like, "Okay, it was a mall." But not okay. like a traditional mall. It was like a one-story oh, mall. So it wasn't like a real. May yeah, I mean I don't remember, like I said, but I mean I can picture it in my mind very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. And then we used to go to this place, and my mom does not remember the name for carnitas all the time. <gasps> carnitas Uruapan? Uh, girl, I don't remember <laughs> the name because I never had to. I never had They're to drive right? there. We famous. always went. My, yeah, that must be like they had a giant olla mm-hmm. in the front, and you oh, went yum. inside, and it was like wood like very rustic inside Ooh. and they had like animals and stuff on the wall. <laughs> I think it was Carmita Suruapan because they're very famous and they're delicious, by the way. Oh my I think God. they're, I think they're still there. Oh my God. Okay. You're going to have to give me the name yes. again. Like you're going to have to remind me because I've been wanting to go and I'm like, mom, what was that place we used to go to have yeah. Carmitas? And my mom's like, I don't remember. And she's like, I can't <laughs> remember the name. She's like, cause we used to just go yeah. And it's been so long and I've been wanting to go and I know I would love to take my parents there again. Oh, like, that would we be used so to nice. go not and it wasn't ever just me and my parents. It was always like my tias and tios and my cousins, like all we would there would be like 20 of us going. Oh, my goodness. OK, now I'm hungry. I know. Yeah. Now I want some carnitas, which I is know. hard to get here in Texas. <laughs> carnitas and carne asada. Yes, carne asada. I'm like, what happened to the carne asada tacos? They don't know. They don't know. (laughs) What part of Texas are you living in? In Austin. Okay. But they do have good food in Austin. They do. They do. Barbecue is off the chain in Texas. It is. I actually didn't really know much about barbecue until I moved here. And I'm like, wow, it's like, it's huge here. 
You know, it's so funny. I'm not a big barbecue person. I mean, I when I get it, I get it. So when I, the last time I went to Dallas in May, oh. I, yeah, I went with my friends and we freaking just tore it up. Yeah. However, when I lived there, I didn't eat it all the time. I'd have it maybe a few times a year because it's just so heavy. It's, yeah. But... When I went to, there's a a barbecue place here in San Diego and I'm like, I need to look for Texas barbecue because somebody's like, oh, my friend was visiting. They're like, oh, everybody said I should, we should go to Phil's barbecue. Oh, I was going to ask you, is it Phil's? Okay. I knew. Okay. (laughs) And I was like, I had never been there. And I was just like, he was like, oh, this is so good. And now let me just say he's from the UK as well. (laughs) And he's like, what do you think? I'm like, it's not Texas barbecue. Uh I mean, like, even though yep. I'm not a, you know, I was just like, I'm like, so, this is Kansas City style barbecue. They're all <laughs> yeah. about the sauce. Oh, yeah. Can- I said, Texas is all about the meat. You can have the sauce just helps accentuate it. But Texas barbecue, you that meat, there's no comparison. Absolutely. And I've been to Phil's and now I thought I had really good barbecue in San Diego. Little did I know because yeah. moving to Texas, it's like, elevated a hundred percent and like you said the barbecue it just complements the meat it's not like you don't need to soak it up in the barbecue like I used to (laughs) I know they get really um when like we would say here oh we're gonna barbecue no we're not barbecue we're grilling out oh yes because they terminology yeah oh yeah totally (laughs) it's hilarious my husband actually wants to get one of those, like the, the not a roaster, like a smoker, like a smoker, a roaster. Yeah, a smoker. See, I'm not quite there with my terminology. Like, but I was there a long time. I got you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, yeah, but it's definitely they have like cookoffs, and it is no joke around here. It re- no, it really isn't. But then you're giving up the really good Mexican food because oh, they are all about the Tex-Mex. I'm not a big fan of Tex-Mex. Nope. And people that don't know the difference, like Tex-Mex is very soaked in queso and mm-hmm. sauces and crema. And it's just very, very heavy. And you know, it's the yeah. first time I when I went, when I moved to Texas and they're like, oh my gosh, let's order some queso. And I was so confused <laughs> because here you order queso, they will bring you a side of cheese, like shredded cheese. Now having queso, I'm like, hell yeah, let's get some queso. <laughs> you know, I thought it was queso fundido at first. And I'm like, oh yeah, we'll have some queso fundido oh, yeah, with no. chorizo, rajas, like we used to have it. Yeah. And then I'm like, what is this? Because they brought the queso and the chips, yeah. the totopos. And I was so hesitant at first. I'm like, I'm not going to try this queso. I was like trying to be all like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I had it. Now I love it. It's, you're, it's addicting. It's yes. addicting. I'm like, I don't care what's in this queso. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's completely. But like I said, I'm not, when I was there, people would be like, oh, where's the best Mexican food? I'm like, Casa de JYP, you can come <laughs> exactly. to my house and I'll make you Mexican food. <laughs> I've had to resort to that lately. My husband and I have been on a quest for some authentic Mexican food, like tacos. Just, I want some tacos de carne asada like you find in Tijuana. Well, that's very difficult around here. We've had to just make our own. Yes. So I love, I know, we totally got off in tangent, but that's okay. We're fine with (laughs) that. I love food. I love food. Me too. Me too. I, I can't help it. I'm whatever, you know, it is what it is. We love food. You were talking in your bio about the challenges you faced that you now see as gifts. Can you talk about some of those challenges? I mean, obviously, one of those I would probably be 
in regards to commuting so long? How long did you do that commute? Did you do that through high school? So I did that for about four years. Okay. So the commute was challenging because I didn't know any better. I didn't have a different point of reference. To me, it just seemed normal. And a lot of other kids in Tijuana would do that. So a lot of my other classmates would also travel from Tijuana to San Diego every day. So it's just a normal routine for anybody that is growing up on the border. Some of the challenges that I think really shaped me as a person is now I see them as blessings, right? Back then, if you were to ask me this question, maybe three, five, you know, seven years ago, my answer would be completely different. (laughs) So when I was born in California in Los Angeles, my mom actually decided to divorce my dad within days of me being born. And that I could only imagine was a very difficult decision for her. Having lived through a divorce myself, I know that it's extremely difficult. You take a lot of things into consideration and it's not a selfish decision. So I grew up without having that parental figure in my upbringing or in my world until I was much older. um, My mom married an amazing gentleman who unfortunately later died. Uh, He passed away. So it was a very short-lived period where I had a parental figure. And that's what I was referring to in terms of some of the challenges of not having that father figure in your life definitely does shape you and as a person. And, you know, you, you go through your struggles, you go through your challenges. I think that even now I'm, I'm struggling with some of the aftermath of that and probably will struggle for the rest of my life. It's just a matter of who I am. And it's just, it's my story. And I've learned to embrace it because now I see the value of having a great husband that is there for my daughters to be able to somehow not continue that cycle of not having a very strong father figure in somebody's family. So that was the main challenge that I was referring to. And unfortunately, my brothers also experienced that. And I do feel for them because it's not something that I wish upon anyone, but it, it, it happens. And I know that my mom, we've had many conversations now as, as adults, uh, we're able to really have deep discussions as to what led to that. And why did you choose that versus maybe not having the best father figure? It's just no father figure whatsoever. And now I appreciate her decision. And I think that I support it too. I would probably tell her if I was able to go back in time while she was trying to decide what was best for her and her children at that point, I would say, yes, sometimes it's having that negative influence in your life is not worth it. It's best to just remove it, isolate it, and you'll be fine, obviously, through hard work and and a lot of perseverance, but your kids will be fine and you will be fine. Yeah, especially because when you're growing up, and I think, you know, I've seen a lot of instances of these in regards to people staying together just for the kids, Mm -hmm. right? But then you're showing whether you realize it or not, kids are forming how relationships are supposed to be based on the relationships they see their parents in, right? Or right. whether or the people, their guardians, whoever is around them, 
right? Whoever's those adult figures around them, however they relate to each other, that's how they're starting to form. Oh, that's how I'm supposed to be. Oh, that's what love is or Mm -hmm. oh, this or that. And I think it can be very difficult. I would assume is that what prompted the move to Tijuana is that, was it that split and then being able to just have more of an, and I say this loosely, so please correct me, having more of an opportunity to be like, to be able to work in the States, but also be able to provide in Tijuana? Yes. So that is definitely an incentive living in Tijuana, but also getting like a, an income from the States is really major for a lot of people. It's huge. And that's why a lot of people do what they do. They live in Tijuana, especially now with the cost of living. Um, that's the only way that people can actually survive is you, there's a three hour commute each day, but you just do what you need to do and just to be able to survive and push your family forward. So my mom, eventually, she moved to Tijuana and it was the best thing for us at that point. I was able to grow up uh, among my grandmother, my grandfather. So my grandmother and my grandfather, they're not like a grandparent figure. They're more of a, so I call her a ma and a pa because they're, it's a mother figure and a father figure. Uh, My grandfather passed away in 2008, but he was my father figure because he essentially adopted us into their family. It's interesting because my uncles, I see them as my siblings in a way. We're about maybe seven years apart in age, but I call them by by their first name, which is very strange, right? Well, (laughs) yeah, because my mom is the youngest of 10. Uh-huh. So she's very close in age, like she's closer in age to some of my cousins than I am. Right. Because her brothers that had kids, like were way older than her and she's the youngest one. But they still call her auntie, which I'm like, maybe it's because <laughs> they're so close in age that right. they, like saying Thea didn't feel right. Right. However, my nephews call my youngest sister by her first name. Yes. And I they, mm-mm. Right. I am Tia J. Uh, you do not one you time have one, seniority. Yeah. <laughs> no, you do not call me J. Why? Because I'm your Tia J. Right. I'm your Tia, and you're not going to call me J. Go ahead and try it. See how far you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny because now, as I'm older, you know, whenever I call my aunt, I feel like so informal because to just call them by their first name, although all my life I've referred to them by their first name because they're my, not my siblings, but we grew up as siblings. Yeah. But now I, I always add Thea before their first name because I was brought up. You have to call somebody that is older than you, usted. You can never call tu. It's always usted or Thea, you know, this and that. But it was very I kind of strange now that I think about it, that I was able to call them by their first name for as long as I remember. But it was great because we formed a very strong bond. And now I can call my tias and talk to them. And it's a different relationship versus like a niece. It's kind of like in between a niece mm-hmm. and a sister. Because I know we grew up with calling our friends' parents, even on like our Mexican friend, like my friends would always call my mom Yolanda. You know, oh, they'd always okay. call her. Yeah. And I would call my friends, like my friend, Christina, her mom's name was Carmen. I'd be like, hi, Carmen. Da, da, da. And yeah, 
maybe that was just a, a states thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I would say so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> My mom would probably give me like the death stare if I were ever to call somebody by their first name. She'd be like, excuse you, you know, without even saying it, I would just totally read it on her face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, if I met somebody's parents for the first time, I probably wouldn't now. I think it's, de- I mean, obviously I it's would be like, oh, now. yeah. I yeah. think it's how they're introduced to you. True. That's how I think. Mm-hmm. If it's, if they're like, oh, this is my mom, or if they just said, oh, this is my mom, I would be like, oh, hi, you know, senora, how are you doing? And yeah. because then sometimes you don't know last names. So oh, I, like, I would just say, oh, hi, senora, how are you? I know. Versus saying a last name and they're like, no, that's not my last name. Yeah. Whatever, because <laughs> you never know. You just never know these days. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese mix. Hola, mi gente. If you haven't heard, I am here to share with you the Wine and Cheese podcast has launched the very first Latine owned wine brand directory ever. Just go to the Wine and Cheese podcast.com, then go to Wine Brand Directory. There you will be greeted by me. But more importantly, you will be able to choose a winery first by region, then by county. And the wineries in that area will not only be listed, but you can connect directly to them from this site. It couldn't be easier than that, right? Use this directory to plan your own wine adventure or learn about some of these Latine vintners or share it with a friend and have them buy some Latine wine as well. Something like this has ever been available. So go use it and support our community. What were your dreams as a little girl and as a teenager? Because and did like having that bicultural, bilingual, but I mean, truly bicultural, because I say a lot of us are bicultural, but you truly lived on the border crossing every single day. What kind of dreams did that help you develop or did you have as a little girl and, and growing into a teenager? So growing up, I actually wanted to be an anthropologist, which is very different than my career choice (laughs) later in life. (laughs) I don't know how that happened, but I, you know, growing up, I've always dreamt about traveling the world and learning about other cultures, specifically Mexico. The reason why I was so intrigued about that is because my father, again, I had no communication with him until I was much older. But I did know a little bit from my mom about his history and where his family was from. So he's from Sonora. And I remember my mom mentioning to me that I looked a lot like his side of the family, my paternal grandmother, my eyes, my features. He's from... I think a certain region or my, but my maternal grandmother is uh, Yaki. So she would also say that I had a lot of resemblance to the Yaki. So when she mentioned this to me, I must've been 11, 12 years old. I was intrigued. Like, oh, this is amazing. I want to learn more about this. So that's how (laughs) I got to the anthropology part. So that was my dream. But of course, you know, life takes you in different directions And I later, um, once I graduated, I decided to start a career in real estate management, which is where I spent 20 plus years of my life really devoting my skill set and my expertise into building that career. But yeah, so growing, I wanted to be something completely different than 
than the role that I had uh, later in life. So how do you go from building real estate management into creating this company? And let me just say, there's so many different things that you have here through your website, a lot of apparel. I'm going to go through it again because it's so, I love, I mean, I was looking at this, you have a girl's collection, you have a burnt orange collection. So I guess that goes well in Austin for uh, UT. Longhorns and UT. Absolutely. I'm not, I didn't, I didn't go to UT. I I graduated from the University of North Texas. So I'm going green, (laughs) right? You actually have a Oaxaca collection, which my mm-hmm. that's where my grandma's family is from. Oh, and then my okay. grandpa is from Jalisco. Okay. So there's so many just beautiful items on here. So how do you go from that? And I want to I want you to share because you actually work with these Mexican artisans to bring these items to life. But also, I love the diversity that you have on your site. You have, you know, with your Oaxaca collection, you have an Afro-Latina. Yes. It looks like she's very native. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that are very, very important that we represent all of the community in Mexico, not just what people think, right? Comparatively, we're both very light-skinned Latinas, and we have to be very cognizant and amplify and be there for our other, everybody else that's in Mexico and every, within the Latin American community, Right. All shades. We come in all shades, all sizes, all hair colors. I mean, look at my hair is crazy curly (laughs) and yours is very straight. Like we come in all of these different things and we have to continue to fight for represent true representation for all of us instead of just who people think we should look like. So I really enjoyed that when I went to your website. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So how I pivoted into Origin Mexico and really fulfilling a dream that I've had for many, many, many years was, I think, a moment in my previous career. Like I mentioned, I was in real estate management, was doing that for 20 plus years. I excelled at it. I was thriving. I was at a point of uh, in my career where I needed to choose. I needed to determine what am I going to be doing for the rest of my life? Am I just going to continue doing this? I'm fairly good at it. Or am I going to really look into that dream and that I've had for a number of years? I just wasn't able to really articulate what it was at that point. I knew that I wanted to do something different. I knew that I wanted to be able to connect with my culture, be able to help empower other artists and women and women in general. I just didn't know how or where to start. And I think it all boils down to a moment where I had a conversation with my supervisor, who is an amazing mentor. She's a really good friend. She had a conversation with me and she said, hey, we are essentially building a succession plan for the company and I want you to be part of it, which was amazing, right? I'm thinking this is an amazing achievement. I should be excited. I should be ecstatic. I wasn't, you know, deep down, I was telling myself, this is really not you. Yes, you enjoy it. Yes, you're good at this. But is it really you? It wasn't. It didn't fulfill me. I didn't think that I was contributing in any way to something that was meaningful to me. So I said, yeah, I'll think about it. I spoke with my husband and he said, well, what are your thoughts? And I said, you know, as much as I want it, because everyone wants that financial security and it's 
very attractive. It's not true to myself. It's not true to what I want to, the mark that I want to leave for my daughters and for my family. And I said, I'm just going to pass. So essentially, I passed on that amazing opportunity to be part of this, which is still an amazing organization, but it just wasn't for me. I had to spend 20 plus years in the corporate world to realize that that fast paced environment, you know, with extremely ambitious goals is not for me. And that's just not the person that I am. I value other things in life versus the monetary accomplishments and the title. Right. Although it's nice. Yes, I'm not I'm not going to lie and say that. Well, it I wasn't. think we also learned over the last, you know, 20 months or however long it's been in 19, 18, whoever knows at this point that what is true financial security now having a nine to five job isn't necessarily financial security. Everything can change like that. Absolutely. I'm so glad that I had that conversation with her because sometimes you need a little nudge. Sometimes you just need the universe to tell you, hey, you need to really reconsider what it is that you're doing with your life and how it is that you're contributing. So fast forward, maybe three years, you know, we decided to move to leave San Diego, move to Austin. And through this relocation, I was actually able to pursue something that I've been dreaming about for many, many years. It's something that means so much to me being able to work with Mexican artisans, specifically women, because what I've learned through our relationships and our connections is that women really have, the majority of us have a common goal, which is we want to have a better life for our future, for our generations to come, for our families. And we really want to improve the quality of life and leave a lasting memory in those people that we love that are closest to us. And how do we do this? By giving the gift of time. Living and working in the corporate world, I was away from my children, from my daughters. I have three beautiful daughters. I was away from them for 10, 12 hours a day. You know, you get sucked in. You don't even realize it, but you're sucked in into it. And as I started to reconnect with the artisans and really learn more about them, not just from a partnership level, but more from a friendship level, I was able to learn that a lot of them work in their homes with their children next to them, or they're in their home. They don't have to send them to daycare. They don't need to send them to somebody's home so they could be watched over while they work. One of the great benefits and one of the things that really brings me a lot of joy, and I'm so passionate about probably because I could resonate with this, is the fact that they work out of their homes. And a lot of these places don't have the technology resources that we have. You know, we have Zoom, we have the internet, we have a lot of the tools that allow us to work virtually. And fortunately for a lot of the artisans, they live three to four hours away from the main cities without a computer. So they don't have the same benefits or opportunities as we do to be able to just, you know, schedule a call um, quickly through whatever means, Zoom or whatever that be. Um, But the fact that they're able to earn income while they're still physically in their home with their kids next to them, that brings me so much joy. And I learned this through a lot of the conversations that I had with them. So there's a couple of things that I want to like, I'm just like, that's so awesome. 
One, I know that they've said, you know, obviously women are very much drivers of what happens in the community. So if a if you're if women have a trade in a business that affects the entire community, not just that family, those kids are probably learning this trade along with watching their mothers and and everything else. How did you actually initially get connected with these artisans and how do you do you allow them to do you do you go over like this is kind of what my idea is or do you let them kind of drive that wheel you know take the wheel on that and how do you keep in touch with them in order to make sure that things are happening the way you want so i had the opportunity to meet the artisans maybe 10 years ago when my husband and i would travel through mexico we would essentially just rent a car and just explore the areas. We wouldn't really hire a tour guide. We would just explore the small villages in Chiapas, Oaxaca. And we've gotten to to know a lot of people. And it's through those experiences that I was able to connect with a lot of artisans. And it was amazing. So if anyone hasn't had the opportunity to just rent a car and explore and just see where the day takes you, I absolutely recommend it. So we met many artisans and we met a lot of people, but we really, I didn't really think that I was going to reconnect and with the effort of, or with the purpose of establishing a partnership. I thought that they were amazing. I really adored the way that they created um, their clothing. I was I was intrigued by the process. I was amazed by the fact that it took so long to create one blouse. And I was truly impressed by the fact that they had so much pride in it. Fast forward many years, 2020, I learned that during COVID specifically, a lot of the artisans rely on tourism. And because that wasn't available last year, their income was essentially eliminated. It was like depleted because there was no tourism, nobody going to Mexico, nobody going to visit. This is somehow how everything just developed. At that point, I quit my career, we relocated, and I had a conversation with my husband about, okay, so what's the next step? And through this conversation, I said, I really, really want to do this. Like, I really want to fulfill this passion that I've had for a number of years. We came to an agreement that, yeah, this is the best time, good timing. And we were given that opportunity for me to actually leave my corporate job and eliminate one source of income. So I reconnected with the artisans through WhatsApp. (laughs) So that's how... WhatsApp is amazing. (laughs) That's how we got in contact again. And I said, hey, you know, I know that we haven't been in contact. I love what you do. It's been a passion of mine to be able to to share the artistry and your handcraftsmanship uh, with the rest of the world. I would love to do this if you're up for it. And they said yes. So right now I'm working with three artisan families and I hope to expand that in the future. I essentially go through a vetting process and I interview them to make sure that Things are produced in a way that aligns with our values, essentially. So for the moment, it's just three artisan families. And that's how we connect. We connect through WhatsApp. (laughs) So they'll send you pictures through WhatsApp. So who, like the designs, do you just kind of let them drive the wheel in regards to the designs? So we collaborate on a lot of the design aspects. I do give them some suggestions. However, there are 
certain pieces where we cannot modify them. We want yeah. to be respectful and we want to be sensitive to a lot of the embroidery techniques that are specific to that region, especially in Oaxaca. So there, you know, I could maybe give um, some suggestions or ask them to change out an embroidery color to maybe black or maybe mustard, which I love neutrals. But a lot of times I want to be respectful of what they produce. I want them to be able to showcase their embroidery techniques and their embroidery style, which is interesting, but it changes from region to region. So even if you're in a Muscos and there is a town that is three hours away, they may have a different embroidery technique. And we definitely want to be able to, to represent and, and have it speak to that region and to that village. Yeah. So let me ask you another question that I'm sure people, I think now are very much more cognizant of in regards to price point. Mm-hmm. And how do you split or I'm trying to think of the right words to say, but I feel like if I say it, you'll understand what I'm saying. In mm-hmm. regards to a fair wage of what you're paying your artisans versus how much you charge for your for the products here. Because I know that there's always, people want to know that people are getting paid fairly for the products that they're doing. So how do you work through that? Yeah. So when I work with the artisans, you know, one of the initial conversations was that the reason why I'm doing this is because I want you to have those economic and those financial resources to be able to thrive and to be able to to share this technique with your children and hopefully grandchildren. I know that a lot of them don't benefit from a lot of the resources like we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was very important for me specifically. So when I speak to them on price points, they set their price. They set their price and they tell me this blouse is X amount. I sometimes even question them. (laughs) Probably is not the best business move, but I question them because I know how long it takes to create and to hand embroider a blouse. It takes 20 hours. So a lot of times if they set a price, I ask them, okay, are you sure about this though? How long did it take you to produce this? They're like underselling it. (laughs) Yes, completely. And I really tell them, listen, this is something that is a technique that you're carrying through many generations. So again, I'm probably advocating for them, but I'm also a business And I have to keep that mindset as well. But I remind them, you know, well, this took you 20 hours. You know, let's let's maybe talk about the price point on this blouse or this weepie. So they set their own price. I honor that price. And my goal is to be able to continue uh, providing them that source of income. And I like how you on your website have the who you work with and give some of their story on there. I think that's really important for people to know where these things are coming from and that you are crediting these things because obviously being una mexicana también, you just, you want to make sure that, you know, there's been so much like cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. and everything like that, but you know that you have advantages here that they don't have. So it's very, very important that we do share the stories of the people who are making them, where are they coming from? And I think that's just... Yeah, you have to do that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, when I started building my business plan, I really wanted to 
provide that connection to the artisan. I wanted my customers not to just see it as a blouse, but to see it as a person that's creating this, a woman that's creating this in Hidalgo that spent 20 hours of her day creating this blouse for you. So what I do now is I include a tag on each item that says, this took 20 to, or 20, maybe 30 hours to produce. It was made by the Hernandez family in Hidalgo. So they know that I know who produced it. And this is the reason why I currently only work with three artisans uh, or three artisan families is my goal is I need to know who makes this. I need to know that it's done ethically, that it's produced in an ethical manner. So definitely safe environment in somebody's home and that it's it's handmade yeah. because that's our goal is to be able to to really place value in things that are handmade. How have your kids seen or have they said anything or have you talked to them about what you're doing and what would you like for them to kind of take away from watching you create this business? So I have three daughters and the oldest is 21. She's still in San Diego. And I talk to them a lot about the artisans that create their dresses because they wear them almost on a daily basis. So as they put on their dress, I try to take an opportunity and say, you know, this was created by X family or this was made in Oaxaca. And it's important for me, for them to be able to embrace their culture. As I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast is I speak to them in Spanish, but they answer in English. So it's a constant challenge with them <laughs> working on that. So <laughs> we'll see where it goes, but it's important for them to know that a lot of times things in life take time that the most meaningful things in life will take time and it's not instant gratification as we know as it's it's a thing that we're constantly trying to battle right instant gratification True. so a lot of times it's you have to really put your effort and your hard work into something that is meaningful but not only for you for something that's much more bigger than yourself it's your culture yeah. it's where we all come from it's important that we embrace it and that we have this pride in it so when they wear a dress, yes, I totally explain to them, hey, this was made by the Hernandez family in Hidalgo, or this was made in Chiapas. And the youngest are there. She's now eight and the other one's four. So I don't know how much of that she she gets, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that it's planting a seed in her mind of like, oh, okay, this is handmade. And hopefully when she's older, she's also able to love it as much as I do. Oh, I'm sure. And I think... As they get older, and I'm sure you'll talk to them more about why you choose the families you do and why it's important to not only share where it comes from, but, you know, that it, it's ethically sourced and that you're paying people a fair amount for what they're doing and not taking it, you know, taking advantage of people's work. They're going to grow up with that. And that's going to that seed has already been planted, I'm sure. Before I ask the final two questions, I want to ask, like, where do you want to go with Orge Mexico? Like, where do you see this going? Do you see things outside of clothing? Do you want to just stay within clothing? What do you envision? I definitely see it expanding outside of clothing. Um, I love fashion. I love clothes. But I also 
love empowering women, women that maybe lack in some of the resources that we benefit from. And I see in the artisans that I work with, I see my family and I see my great, great grandmother. So my goal and my vision is to be able to help nonprofits. I currently support one nonprofit in Oaxaca. So it's called Fundación en Villa. And they're amazing. They help artisan women through microfinance and also education opportunities. But my goal is to be able to add on additional nonprofits, whether it be here in Austin, whether it be in Mexico. But that is something that I would love to do. And in terms of expanding, I would love to. Definitely working on that. Uh, but like I said, I really do vet all of my artisans. I want to make sure that they their values align with my values as well. So it's a slower process than what I anticipated, but that's okay. I just want to make sure that I work with the right people. So um, in the future, I want to be able to expand it to include more home decor and maybe even like guaraches, footwear, more accessories. But it's going to take some time. Yeah. And I'm definitely okay with that. I'd rather be thoughtful and careful about my my selection and the people and the artisans that I partner with than rush through a process. It's definitely something that I want to be able to think about very thoroughly. Nice. How can people find you, What your website and your social media? Yeah, so they could find me on my website. So it's originmexico.com. And also on Instagram, it's origin underscore Mexico. On Facebook, it's at origin Mexico goods. Thank you so much. Is there, uh, let me make sure, like, I want to make sure I did not miss anything. Is there any final things that you want to say before I, like, before we close out? I just want to make sure I give you the opportunity. Thank you so much. Um, it was a great conversation. We covered a lot. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And thank you again for giving me just a space where I could share my story and talk a little bit more about the artisans that I work with. Oh my gosh, absolutely, Yasmin. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you guys. Go check out her website. Go check out her social media, follow. I know that there's some more people that I'm going to have coming on, some other apparel people as far, and I think it's really important because everybody gets their inspiration mm-hmm. from from different places and these stories are always unique because our stories are unique so thank you so much for sharing it until next time mi gente thank you for listening to this episode of the wine and chisme podcast for more information on today's guest please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media, at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram, and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more.